I cried out to God for help. I cried to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? And then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. God, we pray that you would remind us of your presence, of how you have moved, that you would remind us that you are the God who keeps promises, that you made a way for us, that we can trust in you, that we can turn to you always, that you never leave us. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You may have a seat. I want to welcome you this morning, and uh, if you are a guest this morning, I want to invite you, actually I want to invite everyone to uh, grab a a yellow communication card and uh, let us know that you're here. Um, On the back of the communication card is a spot where you can write prayer requests and uh, and, uh, let us know how we can pray for you. Um, If you have any questions for us, please let us know. We just want to want you to feel welcome, and uh, we promise we won't harass you with lots of phone calls or, or anything, but uh, if you want, we'd love to reach out and say hi. So um, fill out a communication card this morning and let us know you're here. There's also going to be a next step at the end of the message, and uh, if you want us to pray for you for that, that, that you would take a next step in worship, then uh, we'll have a, a word that you can write on the back of your communication card for that as well. Um, again, welcome. Uh, I'm usually up here with a guitar. And I'm, I'm grateful for uh, people like Kevin and uh, the musicians that can lead so that I don't have to do, like, double duty on a morning like this morning. But uh, I'm going to keep this in front of me because this is a music stand and this is my security blanket. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't go off script real well. So there it is. Uh, this morning we're going to be talking about worship. So that's, that's part of why I'm up here speaking instead of Tim. Um, the... But I want to start with just a little story here and, uh, and see if, if you guys can grasp what I'm going for here. Um, so I, I'm going to say a line. I'm, I'm going to say a few words. And I want you to raise your hand if you know where this comes from, okay? So uh, here's the line. You'll shoot your eye out. Anyone? Okay, good, good. So this line is from a movie, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, called A Christmas Story. And uh, A Christmas Story is this great just comedy for the holidays, um, and it's something that my family has watched since I was a little kid. Um, we know all the lines. We reference them all the time. It always brings a chuckle um, if, if we're around each other. Uh, in fact, even Friday night, we were doing this game where we had to write down someone's name on a piece of paper, just a random name uh, for this game, and uh, somebody in my family wrote down Scott Farkas, who is the bully in this in this movie, uh, Scott Farkas, he had yellow eyes. So help me, yellow eyes. Uh, the, the bully Scott Farkas came up uh, Friday night and everybody smiled because we all knew, oh, they're, they're talking about the Christmas story. Um, in fact, this one goes even deeper for me, though, because um, like I said, I've watched it since I was a little kid. I have 
distinct memories of, of uh, my grandpa and grandma Wellstead's house and, and all the uncles and aunts and cousins gathered for Christmas Eve and we would have that movie on. So we would watch it, you know, moving in and out of the room. We would, we would catch pieces of it. So I've, I've known this movie forever. So when someone says a line from the movie, it's, it's more than just a reference to the movie. It, it brings up my, my history. It brings up my story, my family's story. Um, it, there's, there's meaning there. There's relationship and shared experience. And, uh, and that's the direction that we're going to go this morning with worship, is that uh, when, we, when we gather, there's, there's meaning here. Um, there's shared experience and there's relationship under it all. Uh, one of the most helpful classes that I took on the Bible focused on the overarching story of the Bible. Uh, this big story becomes our lens through which we interpret all of the little stories of the Bible and understand them. Um, there are six kind of big chapters of the, of the Bible, if you want to look at it this way. One is creation. In the beginning, God created everything in six days, including mankind, a special creation made in the image of God, and then God rested. God gave the earth to Adam and Eve to enjoy and to care for, and God was with them. The Garden of Eden represents a perfect relationship between creator, mankind, and all of creation. But chapter 2, the next big chapter, is the fall. Given the choice to do things God's way or their own way, Adam and Eve chose to do their own way. They call this sin, and it damaged the relationship that they had with God. The cost of sin was death. Blood was shed, a sacrifice to cover the sin. Mankind suffered under their broken relationship with God. The next chapter is Israel. The descendants of Adam and Eve grew into the nation of Israel, and God established a covenant with them. He blessed them. He kept his promises to them. But the Israelites kept going their own way, further into sin. Eventually, the nation of Israel was conquered and the people exiled, but God still pursued them, and he spoke through the prophets of a coming rescue. And that's the next chapter, Christ. Jesus is the high point of the story. God created, he stepped into our world as Jesus. Jesus lived a life without sin, but still died to pay for our sins, and he was raised three days later and ascended into heaven. He instructed his followers to go and to make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them. That brings us to chapter 5, church. This is, the, this is where we are in the story. We know the forgiveness of sin and the freedom of grace because of Jesus. And we share the good news of Jesus with those around us because we know that we're nearing the final chapter, chapter 6, which is new creation. Jesus told us he will return to reign. There will be no more dying or sadness or pain because that order of things will pass away. It will be God with his people in a restored world an eternal, perfect relationship between creator, mankind, and all of creation. So, that's the flyover, and I hope you see a common thread through the whole thing. It's relationship. God created us to be in relationship with him. All of it, from the garden to covenant to rescue to his return, points to relationship between God and mankind. And our side of this relationship is worship. What is worship exactly? Is it something we do on Sunday morning like this? Is it just the part before the message? Is it a way of living? Is it a genre of music, a Spotify station? It's, it's, it's kind of all those things, except maybe the last two. Uh, but at its basic level, worship is a response to God. It's our response to God. Prayer, singing, listening in silence, serving at Matt Talbot, giving to the church, reading your Bible, it can all be a form of worshiping God. The first time that we hear a lot about worship is in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. 
When it begins, the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians, and one Israelite, Moses, is called by God to lead the Israelites out of bondage and into the wilderness to worship God. In Exodus 3, God tells Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Most of us know the rest of this particular story. We've got the plagues, uh, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea so the Israelites can escape, and the destruction of the Egyptian army, um, which results in the Israelites going free. God wanted to be with his people, but God's holiness and mankind's sin were incompatible. So God established a covenant with the Israelites. He gave Moses a system, a series of rules um, to make themselves holy so they could be in God's presence and not die. This began with the Ten Commandments. Um, And I'm going to read part of it here. I'm just going to highlight the commandments instead of reading the entire passage. But this is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Here are the Ten Commandments. God starts by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Number 7, you shall, this is number 3, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, Number 4, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Verse 12 is the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Then we've got, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, and finally, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, or his wife, or his uh, servants, or his property, anything that belongs to your neighbor. So these are the Ten Commandments. And I want to point out, the first four have to do with with worship. It's the relationship between man and God. Uh, No other gods before me, uh, no idols, keep the Sabbath holy, and uh, don't use my name incorrectly. The other six are about our relationship with others, but those first four, they're first for a reason. Um, Why? As author and pastor Paul Tripp writes, because only when the worship of God rules my heart will I set everything else in my life in its rightful place. Joyful, perseverant obedience only ever grows in the soil of worship. Worship was the starting point. It's the basis of for the relationship between God and his people. If they weren't going to first worship God and God alone, then nothing else would work. When we align our hearts to worship God, the rest of this falls into place. Remember that later in the Bible, when someone asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus replies, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor. It's a great summary of these 10 commandments. So God then instructs Moses on how they must worship. In Exodus chapters 25 to 31, God gives Moses blueprints for a tabernacle, which here's a, a kind of a picture of what it could have looked like. Um, this, it, it's a, a, a tent, a portable place of worship, so they could move around the desert with it. And here's a quick summary of the system of worship. The tabernacle itself had several chambers divided by curtains. The central chamber was known as the most holy place, and this is where God's presence would reside so that um, he could be among his people. Only the high priest could enter this most holy place, and only under very specific instructions, otherwise God's holiness might destroy him. The outermost area of the tabernacle was furnished for sacrifices. 
in order to atone for their sins, the Israelites would need to bring sacrifices day after day, week after week, year after year. It was the only way that this could work. God was giving them a way to be near him. Finally, the design of the curtains and the altar and the table for the bread and other furnishings that they talk about in Exodus, it was ornate and it was to be done by a skilled worker. Um, it was meant to feel like you were stepping into someplace special, holy, different. It was designed to remind them, actually, of Eden. Even the, the entrance to the tabernacle faced east so that it was represented that they were going back to Eden when they walked into, into, this, uh, into the tabernacle. God's system of worship was designed meticulously as a return to Eden where mankind lived in perfect relationship with God and all of creation. So how did it work? Well, unfortunately, it didn't work really well at all. Uh, the Israelites couldn't even wait for Moses to receive these instructions on a mountain before creating an idol to worship. And over and over again in the following books, God's people turn away and away and away from God. God keeps pursuing them, keeps giving them opportunity to repent, to worship, to be near him, but over and over they mess it up. The worship of Israel failed to meet the standard that God required until Jesus. As we talked about earlier, Jesus lived a sinful life. Unlike Israel, he didn't need to make sacrifices over and over. And what we realize as we go through the New Testament, the story of Jesus and the church is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this system of worship in Exodus. It all pointed to him. Jesus is the new tabernacle. He's the way that we can be with God. He is God's presence. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John actually writes in the intro of his gospel that Jesus tabernacled with his people. He dwelt, made his dwelling among them. Uh, Jesus is the new high priest. He enters God's presence on our behalf, he, and he opens it up to us. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record that the curtain of the temple, which closed off the most holy place, was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus made a, a way for us to, to, to have access to God. Jesus is also the ultimate sacrifice. Because he was without sin, he was not on, under the curse of death. But he willingly died to pay the price for our sins once and for all. Everything required for us to have a relationship with God, to worship Him, was fulfilled by Jesus. That's what the worship system of the Old Testament was designed to reveal. Only God could make a way for, his, for us. Jesus wasn't plan B, He was plan A. Romans 5 verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus is our worship leader. Only through Jesus can we do what we were created to do, and that's worship. There are a lot of layers to this, um, but for now, let's talk about how this plays out for us today. One of the great scenes of the Bible is called the Last Supper. It's between Jesus and his disciples right before Jesus is arrested and crucified. Um, the occasion for the supper, the reason that they were gathering, is called Passover, and it's a tradition that tells the story of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt, which is interesting, isn't it? On the eve of Jesus freeing us from the consequences and the power of death and sin, Jesus and his disciples are celebrating how God rescued, a, rescued the Israelites from the power of Egypt. Here's what Jesus says as they're gathering for the Passover meal. Uh, this is Luke 22, verses 15 through 19. 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus used this moment and the cup and the bread to say something important to the disciples. For one thing, the Passover meal was full of symbols. They ate bread made without yeast to remind them that the Israelites had to leave Egypt in haste so they couldn't make their bread with yeast. They couldn't wait for it to rise. They ate meat roasted over a fire with bitter herbs, which was unusual for the Israelites, but they, were in, they had to eat quickly and leave. Um, so it was another way to remember that story. Each cup that Jesus raised represents a part of the story. So Jesus and his disciples are enacting the Passover meal, the same one that took place in Egypt. But Jesus' words also look forward. He says he won't drink the wine or eat the bread until the kingdom comes again. He says, do this in remembrance of me. This word remembrance is the Greek anamnesis, and it means to remember. Most of the time it means affectionately. To remember affectionately and weigh well and consider. The words are heavy. There's weight to them. Jesus commands his disciples to remember powerfully who Jesus is, and what he's doing. And then he gives them a way to enact this moment later, the bread and the cup, and to remember. That's worship. It's looking back. It's looking forward. It's enacting God's story in a way that brings all of it here and now to guide us and give us hope. Robert Weber says it this way, Worship is the celebration of God's mighty deeds of salvation, culminating in the death and resurrection of Christ. Worship celebrates historic events that happened in the past and anticipates the eschatological, which is a word that just means end of the world and Jesus' return, the eschatological event that will happen in the future. It does so in a way that the meaning of both past and future is made alive in the believer's experiences now. Through worship, the worshiper enters into God's saving deeds through which the entire history of the world is revealed. The Passover, the Exodus, the tabernacle, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, the resurrection. When we share these moments on a Sunday morning, we're remembering the story for ourselves in word and action to give us hope and to prepare us for Jesus' return in eternity with him. This view of worship then carries into the New Testament. From Acts 2 honored, we see the followers of Jesus gathering, sharing the bread and the cup, listening to the teaching of the apostles, giving to the poor, They enact the story of God regularly to remember Jesus and to find themselves in that story. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, Paul instructs the church of Corinth on how to observe the Lord's Supper. And you'll notice that Paul uses almost exactly the same language that's found in the gospel accounts, the same words of Jesus. It was a way for the followers to put themselves in that moment and to look forward to Jesus coming again. Everything that the early church does has this kind of underlying meaning. It tells the story of Jesus in the Bible as a whole. Here's another example. Four times in his letters, Paul encourages Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss, which isn't, as I was taught, just a pickup line for middle school boys. You know, let's 
The Bible says holy kiss, right? Uh, what it really is, is it's a recognition of a symbol that was in Roman society at that time, and that was that um, Romans would exchange a kiss with someone who is of the same class as they are. So it was an acknowledgement that you and I are on the same level. They wouldn't exchange a kiss with someone who is below their status. They weren't able to exchange a kiss with someone above their status. But Paul tells the church, exchange a holy kiss. You see, Jesus talked with people above and below his status all the time. He talked with women. He talked with the poor, with governors, with rich people, with foreigners. Jesus signaled that everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. The unity of believers supersedes class, race, and status. A kiss in the early church was a symbol that we are all one and equal in Christ. Another example, first century believers, many of whom grew up with the Sabbath, Saturday as a day of rest and worship, began gathering on Sunday to worship. Why? Because it was the Lord's day. It was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. They met on Sunday to remind them of the story, to remind them that Jesus is alive. Our goal at New Cov is to worship on a Sunday morning in ways that remember powerfully the story of God. Not the holy kiss, but other things. Um, We try to create services very intentionally, and I'll give you a few examples of this. Whenever we baptize someone, we point out that baptism is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so, it enacts the death to sin and the life of Christ that we are experiencing. When we go into the water, it's a picture of the old self, dead to sin. When we come up out of the water, it's a picture of our new life in Christ. The worship order points to this uh, rhythm of revelation of God and and our response in worship. Uh, If you ever looked at the headings, we've got singing to God because we've been called here, and so we respond by singing to Him. Um, Hearing God's Word is is God revealing Himself to us, and then we respond by uh, giving our offerings or sharing in communion. Um, The announcements are a signal to get your coats. Not really. Just kidding. Sort of. Sort of just kidding. <laughs> uh, the announcements are actually ways that we can, we can respond, things that we can do that, that help us to respond to what we've heard. Uh, in Hebrews, which is another great book of the Bible that connects the chapters of God's story to Jesus, the author encourages members of house churches in this way. This is uh, Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. He's talking about meeting together, gathering as a church. Worshiping is a communal practice. What we call going to church is really a spiritual discipline. And if you don't believe that, well, if you've ever stayed out too late for a movie or at a friend's house on a Saturday night and then gotten up in the morning and had to just decide to get out of bed and to get to church on time. If you've ever had to wrangle kids and, and feed them and get them dressed and clean and, and get them out the door in time, and, and then your spouse too, like talk them into coming with you and, um, to get to church. It, if you've ever had to skip the first couple hours of Super Bowl pregame, you know that attending church is a willful, sometimes difficult decision. It's an act of obedient discipline. But it's worth it. Whenever we gather and and tell the story and remember and enact the story, there's an opportunity for us to take a step closer to God and for God to work in our hearts, transforming us to be more like Jesus. 
A few years ago, LifeWay Research's uh, Transformational Church Research Project found that of churches who regularly and consistently saw God changing lives in their members, 75% of those churches agreed that they see evidence of God changing lives as a direct result of their worship services or experiences. Sunday morning is an opportunity for transformation. So how do we get the most out of the spiritual discipline of worship? Like Tim has shared a couple times in this series, every system is, designed, is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. We get out of it what we put into it. So the question is, what are we bringing into worship? Are you bringing high expectations for the quality of the music or the message? Matthew Westerholm wrote in an article called Disappointing Worship Services, Beware of ways that our consumer mindset pollutes our attitudes at church. The church is more like a dinner in at home with family than one out at an expensive restaurant. Are you bringing preferences based on your worship style or presentation? If it's all about your preferences, how can if it's all about your preferences, how can your focus be on Christ? Ed Stetzer puts it this way: uh, Worshiping in ways that are not about us makes sense, doesn't it? That's at least part of what it means to offer up worship as service. In other words, it's not about us, but about Jesus. In his book Finding Our Way Again, Brian McLaren calls corporate worship an inward journey, not into me, but into we. Worship sees the church the way that Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians, as the body of Christ. Every part is important. Every part lends to the identity of the whole. So when you find yourself disappointed by worship, for whatever reason, see it as an opportunity. How does God meet you in that disappointment? What might he be using that moment to teach or reach someone else? What might he be trying to teach you in that moment? Here's where I want to challenge us. If we open ourselves to Sunday worship as an opportunity, it can help us to move from Sunday worship to a life of worship. It's a rehearsal, after all, for the worship that we'll experience in eternity. The music is going to be incredible, but that's not going to matter to us much. We're going to be in the glory and presence of our Creator doing what we are made to do, worship. That will be our focus and our joy. In the meantime, here are some practices that might help you make the most of our weekly time of worship. Uh, number one, inconvenience. Practice inconvenience. Just showing up on a Sunday is sometimes a spiritual practice. We're going to a place that we didn't choose, at a time that we didn't choose, for a purpose that we do choose. Sometimes going to church when we least feel like it is the best way to put ourselves aside and worship God. Uh, Tracy and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, I, was, I was trying to come up with some examples of, of these disciplines, and when I got to this one, she said, oh yeah, that was, that was the first several uh, years of our marriage. Um, because on a Sunday morning, I would be here working, rehearsing, getting the band ready, and she would be at home with two uh, preschoolers, and then three, um, who are throwing tantrums, who are not ready to get ready. Um, just getting them to church, um, that was her act of worship, to be here every Sunday. Another practice that we can observe on a Sunday morning, hospitality. I promise we'll never bring back the practice of a holy kiss. But how do you interact with people when you're here? Do you treat them like strangers on a plane? or in the waiting room at the dentist? Take interest in others. Ask them how long they've been coming if you don't know them. Even if you find out that they've been coming longer than you have, at least it's a chance to get to know them. Get past that 
that first question and, and just find out a little bit about them. Tell them that, that they are welcome here. They wouldn't be here unless God was working in their lives. So your engagement with them matters. We want to come alongside people as they walk with God. Uh, and this one, here's another example of this. When, when Tracy and I, uh, we, we started coming here years ago, and then we left, and I took my first full-time position for a couple years in Norfolk. When we came back in 2006, uh, it was weird that our relationships with people here at the church had changed. Some had moved away. Um, others were just kind of in a different place. We were in a different place. And this community that we expected to just right away engage with just wasn't there. And it was hard. Um, and one Sunday, uh, a couple that we knew, a family that we knew, uh, Robert and Joni Voss, um, they said, hey, can we buy you guys lunch? And we said, sure. And they said, so how's it going? And, uh, and we opened up and just shared, this is really hard. And, uh, but it helped to share it and to feel like we were known and we were seen and we were cared for. That somebody would reach out and ask us and just find out about us and how we're doing meant the world to us, and it gave us a, a, a feeling of belonging that sustained us, and, you know, now, gosh, I can't, New Cove is our home. Um, it just feels like that, and I want to extend that to other people as they come in, and, and, uh, and I hope you do too. So hospitality. Uh, another practice is stillness. Maybe the best thing that you can do once you're here is to sit for a moment. Take a few deep breaths, like Brett talked about. Uh, practice quieting your soul so you can truly listen for God's voice. This one's really easy for me. I, I, I naturally am just, I, I love solitude. I love quiet. Um, so I can dive into that one. Another one that's uh, fairly easy for me is singing. Um, Brian McLaren writes, and I love this, singing is so familiar in our church that I fear we're missing what a miracle it is. He talks about the, the body mechanics that produce sound, the coordination of poetry and the artistic score, the instrumentation. And then he writes this. Finally, it involves other people. Many voices, one song. Think of it. Bodies and souls, people and instruments, texts and notes, men and women and children, Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, somehow coming together in the miracle of a song or a hymn. Figuratively as literally, songs harmonize us which is why there are such important communal spiritual practices. Um, in case you were wondering, when we're selecting songs, we're not just picking our favorite songs. In fact, a lot of times we're picking songs that probably aren't our favorite, songs that we've done a, a dozen or more times already, and, and uh, they, just, they don't come to the top of our list. But we pick them to, because we, we, we honestly want God to meet people in these moments. We try to fit them around what's going to be said in the message, um, and we, we put them in this order, trusting that God is leading us in that. And there's been times where uh, God's Holy Spirit has done incredible things in that practice, in that seeking. Um, Tim asked me this week, uh, what, what is this for you? Like, when, when you're picking songs, how do you keep from getting bored with them on a Sunday morning? And I said, honestly, the, the way that it always means something and the way that I can engage mostly on a Sunday morning, is because I know all of you. Sometimes I know that when you're singing some of those words, crying out to God, that it means something very deep. Some of you are crying out from a place of, of hurt. Some of you are crying out from places of illness. 
Some of you need desperately for God to show up. And I'm inspired by that, just to see you singing, to see you here. That means something. And I pray and, and I hope that God meets you in those moments and speaks to you. So that's what keeps me going, is just being inspired by the worship that I see around me. Another example of, of a spiritual practice we can do on a Sunday morning is attentiveness. Consider the sermon and message from both sides. Every week, Tim attends to the Word of God, listening for where God might be speaking. And in turn, we attend to the sermon, looking for ways to integrate it into our own lives. Paying attention to God's Word in the message each week is a spiritual discipline. Or re-entry. When we think of church, sometimes we think we enter into church, but really, we're, we're drawing away from the world around us. We're, we're coming into this place. Um, but what does it look like to re-enter the world? How do we take God's word for us, with us, when we go? Make time to review your notes or to review the message. Put away the phones over lunch and talk at the table about what moved you or what bothered you or what you think God might be saying. Don't put Sunday morning in a box until next week. Reflect, revisit, review it. There are other practices, ways that we respond, um, but we just don't have time for them. Uh, The point is, Sunday worship trains our hearts in so many ways to live lives of worship. And the, the, the band and the team can come up and, uh, and lead us in this next song. Your next step this week is worship. What does it mean for you to worship, to, to draw near, to, to use this time well? I've included some questions and suggestions in the worship guide that I hope will help you make Sunday worship an important part of your spiritual growth into Christ-likeness. There's also a, a reading plan called Blessed, Broken, and Given by uh, Glenn Packiam. Packiam. I've been reading his book recently on this, and, and he talks about how when Jesus blessed the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples, those words describe what God does with our lives when we put our trust in Jesus. That uh, the, for the church, he, he, he breaks it, he blesses it, he gives it to the world. And what that means for us as, as followers of Christ um, consider everything that we typically do on a Sunday morning and, and think about how it points us to God. Um, that's, that's your next step for this week. The team's going to lead us in a song or, or sing a song that, that talks about this idea that everything would be a moment that we can turn to God. And, uh, and as they do that, let's, uh, let's celebrate God and thank Him for how He's blessed us. Let's give our offerings.